to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And by the light of Zeus, I challenge you, Joe. Uh, That's funny because I would not have put you in league with Zeus. I 100% named you daughter of Athena for this recording. I saw that. And yeah, fair. Totally fair. Right? There is no other goddess or god that I would associate you with than someone with intellect and courage and wisdom. Aw, Joe. You're the nicest. Whereas I am the son of Dionysus because... (laughs) My alcohol consumption during the pandemic has skyrocketed. Oh my god, can we talk about how we can't talk about that? Right. Yes. <laughs> we are acknowledging but still avoiding. Yes. It's like a bad relationship, right? Oh my god, Joe, I just realized today, a day that we're recording, I've been on work from home protocol for a month. I'm not sane anymore. <laughs> no, I think insanity is the new sane. It's just the status quo now. You know, and it's so funny because I just, it's that constant feeling of being just a little bit off balance. And I was, I was reading this book, by the way, we're talking about Percy Jackson and the Olympians book one, The Lightning Thief Mm -hmm. by Rick Rick Riordan. Riordan. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just thinking all the way through that, like, what are these stories going to look like after COVID? And I know we don't talk about it on the show and we don't want to get everybody down, but I just, I really do find myself like reading and watching media and thinking a lot about like... How the stories will change, right? Yeah. And some of these things just seem so explicitly from the before times. And this was mm-hmm. one for me that seemed very explicitly from the before times. And I can't put my finger on why. I've seen a lot of people talking about how odd it is now to see crowd scenes mm-hmm. in media. And I had that thought when they go to the Las Vegas casino. Yes. Because it just seems so populated and you just start to think, oh, wow. I haven't seen a crowd like that in quite some time because I'm just not used to crowds anymore. Yes. And I think I kept really thinking about that in the camp scenes, like Mm -hmm. the concept of camp, (laughs) you know? Sending your kids away. What? (laughs) And it's weird because, I mean, it's a fantasy novel. It's not supposed to feel like real life. And yet the parts that seemed most fantastic to me were not the gods and monsters bits. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What an odd time. Very odd time. So we did select this in part because the film is celebrating its 10th anniversary. So it came out in 2010, back in February. But uh, really, I think we also programmed it because we were hoping for a little bit of escapism. Yeah. And I think that's maybe why it hit me because I was expecting to be sort of transported. Transported. Yeah. I'm wondering if I am currently untransportable. Maybe. Maybe. But I enjoyed it. I mean, we're going to talk about some of the problems with the book, but it was it was nice to read an adventure story for sure. And we haven't read, we haven't really read a ton of like sort of solidly middle grade stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is really a middle grade adventure story, which was sure nice because <laughs> there is definitely no shortage of darkness in this story, but the problems felt very manageable to me. And I was grateful for that. Yeah, I won't lie. I struggled a bit through this. I didn't realize how middle grade it was until I was solidly probably halfway through. Mm -hmm. And I found it a bit of a slog just because it does feel so juvenile. Mm -hmm. So part of my issue is 
taking my adult mental state and kind of putting it aside so that I can get into the mindset of a age 9 to 12 reader and try to appreciate this for what it is. Because I think if you can put yourself in that mind state, yes, it's doing a relatively good job, but Mm -hmm. holy heck, it's a bit of a slog for adult readers. Yeah, I felt that. And it's very long and very overstuffed. In a way that I remember as a bookish 12-year-old, I wanted my books to go on and on and on and on, right? Like I loved right. I loved an epic scope and I loved how grown up I felt to carry like a big thick tome around. Right. And now I'm 37 and I just want everybody to hire a better editor. So Oh, yes. <laughs> I realize that this is not Riordan's first book. It is, I believe, his first YA book or mm-hmm. MA book. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think it shows because it's so stuffed with all of the good ideas. Like, I know the genesis of this book is that he has a child with dyslexia and ADHD, and his son had been studying Greek mythology at school, Mm -hmm. so he was telling him nighttime stories. And the son said, oh, you know, I wish that you would come up with new stories because we've run out of these old stories. And this is the genesis of Percy. So it's taking the Greek mythology and transporting it into contemporary times, you know, I like that story, but I also feel like this book is the culmination of all of those stories. Mm-hmm. Like, we can't let one out because they struck so strong when he was telling them to his son. So let's make sure they all show up in the book. And there were times where I was like, but this doesn't need to be in here right now. Maybe save yeah. this for book two or book six. So something I really appreciated about the book is that it trusts readers to do some legwork. And it's very mature in its expectations Mm -hmm. around illusion, which is not typical for a middle grade book. So I was really pleasantly surprised um, and often quite delighted by the way illusion was used. Like I thought that the Lotus Casino was probably one of the greatest things. And and I have to say, and I know we'll talk about the film, but one of my big disappointments... (laughs) The film is so stupid. (laughs) The film does not trust audiences at all. And like, they're leaving the casino. And and she's like, oh, they were the lotus eaters. Mm -hmm. And there's like a beat while we're all supposed to like catch up. And it's like, yeah, no, we, yeah, we got it. Lotus eaters. We're we're there. It's fine. (laughs) You know? We were there five minutes ago. And the book doesn't do that. The book trusts readers in in a way that I find really refreshing. But the flip side of that is that the book is often too clever by half. So if there is reference to Greek mythology to be made, it will make its way into this book, mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter what, and no matter how shoehorny it has to be. Yeah. So I guess maybe we should do the plot. Should we do the plot? Let's do the plot. So there's a lot of plot, and I'm going to try really hard not to get granular. So feel free to stop me. Will do. Because <laughs> there's a lot of plot, Joe. I feel like we've had a few texts in a row with very scant plot. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the universe was like, oh, they're going to get a lot of plot in a couple of weeks. I'm going to really hold back on the plot. <laughs> Let's take it easy on them before I wallop <laughs> them in the face with plot, plot, plot. I mean, like the Wikipedia summation of it, which, you know, normally is like a paragraph plot summary. It goes on and on and on and on and on. It's like multiple paragraphs. So and I think that's one of the things that happens with fandom, too, right, is fans, just like authors, tend to think that everything has to stay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything is important, Brenda. Everything is important. So our protagonist and also our narrator is Percy Jackson, short for Perseus Jackson. <gasps> just in case you didn't get it. 
<laughs> he's a 12 year old and he's been diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD. As Joe said, that comes from Riordan's experiences with his own son. One of the things that I quite liked is the idea of reframing to child, well, not childhood disabilities, but two disabilities that we often see in schools that are often framed as disruptive, mm-hmm. problematic, troublesome, and making them the heroic characteristics of our protagonist. I did really like that. Yep. So when the book opens, Percy is attending a private school in northern New York State. And we find out that he's, he basically changes schools every year because some sort of disciplinary thing happens every year and he gets asked to leave. And as the narrative progresses, we learn that the reason why he goes to boarding schools uh, is because his mom lives with this guy who is awful he's He's just awful he's really really bad um and he doesn't like percy and he makes that really clear so to sort of keep peace um his mom who is not wealthy scrapes together the money to send him away to a, a boarding school year after year and so he's been attending this one that is particularly for like troubled and problematic kids and he's on the verge of getting himself kicked out of this one too when they take a school trip to the metropolitan museum of art in New York City, and... Too granular, keep moving. (laughs) (laughs) Something happens that reveals that there's something off, and then his mother is like, oh crap, okay, I can't hide this. The reason that you keep having these disciplinary problems is because there's more to you than meets the eye. You're half a Greek god, but I'm not going to tell you who your dad is, so you're going to this camp for half Greek gods. Mm-hmm. called Camp Half-Blood. Um, yes. And in fairness to me, being too granular, this is like <laughs> solidly a third of the book, by the way, up to this point. <laughs> it really is. There was it far is too much hurt. who's my daddy action early on. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. It does take forever. So the um, the camp is organized into like schools or houses based on who your parent god is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put this in now and then we can unpack it later. There's no relationship to Harry Potter here. Oh, no. No. <laughs> Why would you even suggest that? <laughs> and I know that's like that's a hot topic, so I'm not just saying that to be ha ha facetious, but no. it's we will an come issue back to that it. we will address. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like three gods who don't have any kids, but they still have houses at Camp Half Blood for some reason, and then all the other kids are in the the other houses. But shockingly, Percy is special and he is one of the kids of the three gods who aren't supposed to have kids. He is Poseidon's kid. Mm-hmm. So things are getting unsafe at Camp Half-Blood, like monsters are getting in and they're not supposed to be able to and everybody thinks they're after Percy. So Percy gets sent on his quest super early and he takes with him his friend Annabeth and his uh, like protector, protector. who's yeah. also a satyr named Grover. Mm-hmm. And uh, they go off on this quest to locate Zeus's lightning bolt because there's going to be a war breaking up between the gods because somebody has stolen the lightning bolt. Um, And he's got 10 days. Yes, he has 10 days to get to Hades. And of course, hell starts in Los Angeles. Because like, couldn't be too on the nose. Um, Yeah, you're saying that there's like a lot of trust in certain aspects. (laughs) This was the part where I just thought, okay, this is... In fairness, it is for 12-year-olds, Joe. (laughs) I think I was more intrigued, like when I watched the film with my husband, Brian was like, so where were these gods before? Like, what would this have looked like in previous times? Because when I told him that the gods migrated with the advancement of new technologies, but also Western expansionism, Mm -hmm. 
he was intrigued and he was like, what would this story have looked like if it hadn't been set in Europe? Mm -hmm. And I did think, yeah, that would have been an interesting story to tell because the idea of like, let's make a road trip across the US to get Mm -hmm. to Los Angeles was like, okay, sure, fine. So they have a lot of road trip adventures, all of which map on in some way to Greek mythology. I'm not going to go into them, but they eventually get you. <laughs> real problem. They eventually get to the underworld. There are a bunch of duels and fights. Um, and what Percy sort of realizes over the course of this journey is that they've been set up by someone and they're not sure who. And so they return to. Oh, yeah. So they uh, I don't know, whatever. They accomplish their quest. They go to Mount Olympus. They meet with the gods. And Zeus is like, I never want to see you again. And Poseidon's like, you're my kid, but also I never want to see you again. Um, right. And he goes, I loved your mother so much. I can't see you or her again. Bye. By the way, this movie comes down really hard on dads in general, because like somehow Athena escapes scorn, but the dude who had the baby with Athena is a ba- is the bad dude. So it's like, it's always the dad who is the bad guy, whether the dad is the god or the dad is the mortal. I just well, noticed yeah. that. It's daddy issues for days. Daddy issues for days. So they go back to Camp Half-Blood and they're like sort of uh, received as conquering heroes. And then it turns out that a character who I haven't bothered to mention yet, Luke, is actually the one who is double crossing them because he's working for Kronos, who is like the king of the Titans, anti-god, god, guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, stay tuned for the sequel. Yeah, very much so. This is <laughs> this is book one, folks, because we have not one, not two, but really three villains. So Kronos has been feeding Luke visions to help destabilize the world of the gods. And then Luke also activates Hades mm-hmm. to do some of his dirty work by suggesting, you know what, a war will be good for you because you're the god of war. You mean Ares. Sorry. Yes, Ares. What mm-hmm. did I say? Hades. God <laughs> there's a lot of gods though and uh, i don't pretend to be strong in classics or mythology right. I, I wikipedia a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah so the the book has this thing where we're following percy and annabeth and grover on some fairly rote adventures that will help to solidify them as a group to you know allow them to grow up and realize what their special skill sets are become members of a team as opposed to individuals all that good classic middle grade ya stuff yes and then we've also got this crazy world ending domination plot with luke and aries and hades a little bit but mostly chronos who is a character but also not a character yeah he's like a presence yes he's a presence yeah not at all like Voldemort. What? Not at that? all like Voldemort in book one. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So you've mentioned the illusions. You've mentioned that you like that the book trusts its young audience. What else shall we say about this book? Um, <sighs> There's too much plot. And that's a problem. Because it is doing some interesting things, but they get buried, right? Like, to me, that's the larger sort of structural issue is is that what is cool about the book does get buried in mm-hmm. a lot of stuff like yes. <laughs> we often talk about our not ideal experiences of reading these texts and like it's not an ideal time to be reading an epic narrative right now i just like yeah i just didn't have the patience for it a lot of the time i was I like okay let's patience. move this along please i, I don't need an action sequence set at a mattress store when we should be ramping up to our climax just so that we can insert another Greek mythology character. Correct. Correct. 
I think part of it, and okay, you know what? I'm just going to raise the Harry Potter-ness of it all. Do it. One of the reasons that I didn't have an issue in Harry Potter, A, the first Harry Potter is quite a bit shorter than this book is in terms of introducing characters, setting them on their journey, and letting them discover that they are special, that they're part of a magical other world that they didn't know exists, and so on. The first Harry Potter book takes place over a year. Yes. This book takes place over 10 days. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's genuinely ridiculous. Again, as you raise, I think if you're a child, you're thinking, I love this, let the journey continue on indefinitely. But Rick Riordan is an adult. Mm -hmm. He's an English teacher, mm -hmm. or he was before he quit to become a full-time author. Mm -hmm. I know that he knows how mm -hmm. to construct this kind of plot. And he's also very self-aware. Like if you go to his blog slash author website, He's very publicly posted how he doesn't like the comparisons to Harry Potter. <laughs> well. Obviously, you wouldn't, right? No. But there's just so much that has been taken off of the traditional hero narrative. And part of me couldn't help but wonder, okay, well, why didn't you learn some of the important lessons as an author so that you could streamline this just a little bit more to make for a better reading experience? Correct. Yeah. I don't know. He's not wrong. I mean, he's not aping Harry Potter, but I don't think he's being honest with himself if he's suggesting that he didn't take a lot of lessons. I mean, yes, structurally, there are a lot of books that follow a lot of those same beats, partly because literally all of these people <laughs> are leaning real, real heavily on friggin' Joseph Campbell and his <laughs> damn story of the hero or whatever, right? Like, here with yeah. a thousand faces. Like, there's a reason these all sound alike, but it is not a coincidence that Harry Potter made 10 bazillion dollars. <laughs> yeah. And right? launched a franchise, right? And launched a franchise. I mean, there's a reason why we also have so many trilogies in YA, yep. right? Like people have paid attention to the successes of others and they've taken from that to inform their own work. And that's fine. We're not saying, he, oh, he plagiarized Harry Potter. We're no. simply suggesting there's a lot of echoes. And this book was written almost a decade later. So yeah, it's going to be informed by that. And like when we're talking about creating a franchise. Mm -hmm. Which this book explicitly is. So we have Percy Jackson and the Olympians, which is six novels, two films so far, and a stage musical. We have mm -hmm. the Heroes of Olympus, which is six novels. We have the Trials of Apollo, which is four novels. We have one, two, three, four, five standalone spinoff, not standalone, but like spinoff books that aren't part of sequel series. Like, yes. It's an empire. It's an empire. Yes. And if you think you're going to create a middle grade leading into YA fantasy book-based empire and mm -hmm. not have a lot of people go, hmm, I see you've learned a lot of beats from Harry Potter. You're yeah. insane. Yeah. And we'll get to some of Riordan's interesting proclivities when we get to the film. And Brenna's going to make sure that I don't go completely off the rails. <laughs> the man has some strong feelings and he likes to blog. There we go. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, he is a writer. He's got an outlet. So he likes to share the letters he writes to the producers. So that's fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit gauche. Mm -hmm. Didn't love it. One of the things that is good about this particular book is that I think there's a lot of opportunities for different types of people to find themselves in these characters. Sure. Would I have had Percy Jackson be less of a frustrating character? Yes. 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 
there were a number of times where I didn't really love the combative nature of his relationship with Annabeth because it's didn't just make so sense. obvious that they're going to be fine. Yes. There's a little too much like sins of the parents in this well, book. I don't think kids actually like if you had a child and then your enemy had a child, I don't think your kids would look at themselves as enemies just based on that fact. And wildly inconsistently, right? Because one of the things that happens over and over again is the kids disavow the actions of their parents or mm -hmm. they resent the abandonment by the godparent or they like we hear that over and over and over again. But then whenever you need a thin reason for two characters mm -hmm. to be fighting, it's well, our parents hate each other. Yeah. Okay, but you just <laughs> you just spent a whole bunch of time explaining why disavowing the parents is, you know, like it's just not consistent in terms of a, a motivation for the characters. Mm -hmm. And that's frustrating in any context. Yeah. One of the things that works better for me is this idea of finding yourself well, also undergoing trials, mm -hmm. right? Because it's fun to think that there is a magical other world that we as humans do not get to see one of the issues that i've always had with harry potter is that the world is explicitly tied to just the school and yeah. I, you know you're always left to wonder well what does the rest of the world look like and yeah. we'll not get to the fantastic beasts of it all whereas this world there's a suggestion that we are always surrounded by all of these mythological creatures mm -hmm. and it's just that the rug has been pulled over our eyes so that we don't see it and I actually think the conceit behind it is is kind of clever and interesting, right? Because Western Europe had a neoclassical period. Britain mm -hmm. had a neoclassical period that happened a little bit later. Then America had a neoclassical period. That is kind of an interesting thing to be like, hmm, I wonder why all of a sudden mm -hmm. these geographic regions separately discover classical architecture, right? Like yes. that's kind of fun. And mm -hmm. I liked the conceit very much. The flip side is that I think it leans super heavy on the idea of quote-unquote western civilization as a constructed <laughs> truth which i actually think riordan has spent a lot of his success unpacking the assumptions that underlie this book uh, which we'll talk about in a minute but right but i like that as a, as a as a starting place like what if every time a culture seems to rediscover greek architecture it's because the greeks is there <laughs> like i kind of mm -hmm. i kind of dig that yeah it's interesting because you see that in the work of people like Neil Gaiman and mm -hmm. in that great comic series. Uh, oh, crap, I'm not going to be able to remember it, but it's about gods who are reborn and they shine brightly for like two years and then they basically all fade out. Mm -hmm. You know, there's often measures of prophecy that are tied into this and like the arising of new gods who circumvent old gods. Like there's a biblical mythological element that informs these stories. And I think that's why they end up striking a chord with readers because it feels like there's a kernel of truth in there, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's the stories we've heard so many times repurposed in new and exciting ways. And then the flip side is... <laughs> I was yes. thinking this... Unpack this for us. Well, I don't know. It was an observation that didn't really come to me in the reading because, I mean, my mind's eye was tired and I don't think it was doing its best work. But yeah. I don't think that I was imagining the gods in their corporeal forms like i think i was imagining like godlike presences when they were communicating okay. but in the film of course you see the gods in their corporeal forms because of course you do oh my gosh and it's nonsense if you could be anything in the history of creation or imagination mm -hmm. 
why does everybody choose to be a white guy who looks the same? Because uh, that's where the power is, Brenna. Like, it was kind of shocking to me watching the film. I was like, really? You, you are all gods and you all choose to be like eh, 45-ish year old men? Like, that's, that's your power move? All of you? Like, it's just... What? Well, how about at this point we introduce the film? Yeah, sure, let's do that. Because I think we can then compare and contrast. Yeah. There are 12 Olympian gods. Big three are the brothers Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. The children of these gods were half human, half gods. Hey, Mom. I thought this school was supposed to make things better. Someday it'll all make sense. Percy Jackson, we need to talk. Dodds? Whoa! They found him. Who found me? We've been expecting you. The gods are real. My father's beside him. God of the seas. Legends. Zeus's bolt is the most powerful weapon ever created. It's been stolen. Between this world and the next. If it's not returned by the summer solstice, there will be a war. Our three heroes. All demigods have inherited skills. I definitely have strong feelings for you. I just haven't decided if they're positive or negative yet. Who must stand and fight? We'll find the bolt. There's nowhere safe on heaven and earth for him now. Okay, so as we mentioned, Percy Jackson came out in February of 2010. It is directed by Mr. Chris Columbus, so check out our previous episodes on Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And maybe not so much the book, I Love You, Beth Cooper. Like, <laughs> listen to the episode, but don't ever touch the text because no. it's awful. You're not allowed to read it like we decided. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just burn it. No, I'm kidding. You burn it a little. Just singe it. Just singe it. Just the edges. <laughs> the screenplay is written by Craig Titley, and I have thoughts on him. And then our cast is Logan Lerman as Percy Jackson. We actually started the podcast with him, Brenna. He's all the way back from Perks of Being a Wallflower. Oh, he looked familiar. Mm-hmm. Huh, okay. We got Brandon T. Jackson as Grover, Alexandra D'Addario as Annabeth, Jake Abel as Luke, and then, of course, the stackedness of this film comes from our adult cast. We've got Sean Bean as Zeus, Kevin McKidd as Poseidon, Rosario Dawson as Persephone, who's not in the book, Steve Coogan as Hades, which is a choice. It's a choice and a half. Holy cow. Mm -hmm. Uma Thurman as Medusa, Pierce Brosnan as Chiron, Catherine Keener as Sally Jackson, Percy's mom, and finally Joey Pants himself, Joe Pantaleono as Gabe, Percy's stepfather. Can we go back to Steve Coogan for a second? Why? I mean, <laughs> I, I get that they wanted to do something distinct. In the book, Hades is by far the most traditionally adorned of all the gods. Yeah. You know, he's described as being, I think it's like eight or ten feet tall, but yeah. he wears these long flowing black robes. And all I could think of was the Disney animated version of Hades from yeah. Hercules. Yeah. So I appreciate that they went in a Mick Jagger rock star direction for the film, but why? Why Steve Coogan? Like, I'm a person who likes Steve Coogan. Sure. 
really enjoy him in lots of things. Thought Hamlet 2 was fantastic. <laughs> Again, though, if you are god of the underworld, mm -hmm. first of all, why are you in a human form in your own house? That's right. my first question. Mm -hmm. But second of all, if you are to take a corporeal form, does it have to be human, A, and B, mm. do you choose a short, mousy white guy as your presence? With do you? ringlets? It's very odd. It's interesting it's to me yeah. because I want to kind of talk to Chris Columbus and be like, do you know that there are people who aren't men? <laughs> like, right? That's a thing in the world. <sighs> yeah. You would never accuse Chris Columbus of... Subtlety? Yeah. Like he, <laughs> he has a particular brand when it comes to adapting this YA material. Yeah. And it is safe. And yeah. it is bland. And yeah. it is very white and very male. Yes. Like, this is what he is bringing to the table. If you want a workman-like director who is going to give you something inoffensive <laughs> that will probably make enough money to jumpstart your franchise, Chris Columbus is your man. And that is what we are getting with this film. It is unimaginative. Mm -hmm. It is safe. Mm -hmm. It is... Not even like the edges have been sanded off as there were no edges to begin with. And this is just giving you every boring fantasy trope that yep. you could think of. I feel bad because I like a lot of the people in this cast, mm -hmm. but this movie is just so bland. I think it's strange. I mean, you couldn't accuse Ryden of not offering enough source material, <laughs> right? Right. And... And Columbus really has taken, yeah, you're right, the, the safest approach to the content. But he's also so unconvinced in the content that he has selected from this rambling book that he needs to, I mean, foreshadowing would be a generous term for what happens in this book. Really what happens is a character turns to the camera and tells you exactly what's about to happen about three minutes before it happens, literally every time. Yes. This movie is the most exposition-y fantasy action movie like there's so much explaining you're always mm -hmm. having things explained to you like you're an idiot which i don't know maybe would be forgivable if the characters were actually 12 but they've aged them up to be what what are they 17 18 annabeth looks about 32 i think they're <sighs> meant to be 16 right so it makes even less sense that they are consistently so foolish yeah we've got aged up dum-dums here <laughs> we do it's very much the giver all over again yes. age them up but don't mm -hmm. give them any more information or life experience. No, and unfortunately, it ends up making them just that much less interesting yes. to watch. So, I mean, this movie is rife with big changes, and it's something that Riordan himself has publicly come out against. Mm -hmm. So not only the aging up of the characters, which very much challenges what Riordan sees as the book's target audience, you know, the idea that you see yourself represented on screen. So he, he considers that not possible because nine-year-olds don't see themselves in 16-year-olds. Mm. And then the other issue is, of course, all of the changes in the plot. So one of the things that Titley has done in his screenplay is that he has really streamlined this narrative. So it's not a series of episodic adventures anymore. It's a quest to find three pearls, which will allow you to escape from the underworld. So find these three things. So we have three big set pieces, and then we go into the underworld, and then, oops, there's been a, a twisty reveal, and then we're back on Olympus, and then we get the reveal that Luke is actually the bad guy. Yeah. 
Whereas in the book, you know, it's far more drawn out, it's far more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. But even little things, like there's far less emphasis on the sins of the parent as mm -hmm. a driving factor. Kronos is not at all in here. No. Ares is not at all in here. No. So the, the film literally takes two of the three antagonists out completely. And at one point, more or less has Luke turn to the camera and mouth, I'm a villain. <laughs> I was telling I was telling Joe before we started recording, I had a window of time to watch the film and I hadn't finished the book yet. And so I was like, I don't know, two thirds or three quarters of the way through the book when I watched the movie. And mm -hmm. so in the book, the Luke reveal has not happened yet. And I had not no. put two and two together about Luke yet. No, because he's really not that present, right? No. Like he kind of starts them on the journey and then you're reminded later, oh, right, where did we get X and Y? Oh, yeah. everything's coming back to Luke. And then Luke saves his big reveal. It's almost like a coda in the book. Yeah. And it's really the kickstart to volume two, clearly. Correct. Less yes. than a plot point in volume one. Mm -hmm. But I was literally not 10 minutes into the movie before there's a prophecy that um, Percy hears that says, like, someone will betray you. And then it, mm -hmm. it like, practically, I mean, it's, it doesn't literally do it this badly, but it practically cuts from the prophecy to Luke's face for, like, 20 seconds. Yep. <laughs> like, it's not that bad, but it feels like it. And I was like, oh, well, hell, I guess Luke's the one who betrays him. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so Yeah. It's so annoyed. startlingly obvious yeah. in the film. I actually don't mind the set pieces in the film themselves. I kind of appreciated the fact that we don't have to go through quite so many of them. So what we get are quite a bit bigger. So they don't just have to escape from the Lotus Eaters by like walking out like they do in the book, which is not cinematic enough. So mm -hmm. in this one, they have to, you know, steal a car and drive it through the front doors. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of fine. Like, these are the sorts of things that I've come to expect, having now talked about YA adaptations for more than a year with you. <laughs> At some length. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, we know that they're going to amp up the action. We know that they're probably going to age up the characters. We know that it's going to be dumbed down because what you need in your 90... $95 million blockbuster hopeful franchise mm -hmm. is you need to have action set pieces that teenagers are going to respond to. Even mm -hmm. if not, is not the audience that the books are being catered to, or that's not the structure of the books themselves. Something that Riordan apparently does and does not understand. Yeah. <laughs> He's publicly posted letters that he wrote to Fox executives when this film was in production. It's a little cringy. It's a little cringy. Yeah, I was telling Brenna off the air that he comes off as a very smarmy entitled jerk in these letters, mm -hmm. which I don't think is the intention. If you see him engaging with fans at conventions and like YouTube videos or interviews, he seems very nice and very loving. Like I can come to understand that he was concerned about giving fans the best adaptation possible. But the problem is, is that he's not really involved in the production of the films, and he then wants to complain about it when they don't adapt to his satisfaction. Yeah. It's just not a good look. No, it's not a good look. And it's interesting because, like, I alluded to when we were talking about the books that Riordan, in those letters, he comes across like a privileged arse. Like, he's, yes. he makes it sound like he is like the god of art, and mm -hmm. and all must bow to his vision. He's actually... In terms of what he's like sort of used his influence for, he he has a Disney imprint, a Disney High Period imprint called Rick Riordan Presents. Okay. And he's had it since 2018. And it's actually kind of cool. He doesn't publish books by himself on this imprint. Instead, he's seeking out writers who are writing about mythologies that 
we don't normally get to see represented in fantasy. Like you and I have talked, mm-hmm. Joe, about how fantasy seems to be drawn from Greek, Roman, yeah. and Arthur- Arthurian legend. And like, that's it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? There are other cultures? What? Other histories? <laughs> As a white person, I have never heard such a thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's one of my biggest frustrations with most mainstream fantasy is like, are you kidding? How many times do I have to hear the same white people stories over and over again? So anyway, yeah, Riordan has this imprint. It's been publishing since 2018, and it's at least got titles listed up to 2021. And I like what he says about it. He says, instead of me writing all of the mythologies of the world, we're looking for authors who are already writing about that stuff. People I can recommend to my readers, and we'll put them here in the spotlight. So the focus is on diverse mythology-based fiction by new emerging and underrepresented authors. Just so great. So great, right? And so like the first book that came out in 2018 was based on Hindu mythology. This imprint has published ones on Mayan, Korean, Cuban, Aztec, Navajo, Native American. Like, so he's acknowledging the idea that there are like this rich body of mythologies to base fantasy on that we just don't see published by mainstream presses usually. Hmm. So I totally dig that about him. So here for it. That's actually all I knew about him before I read this book. (laughs) And then I started like, yeah, like you sent me those links last week, which in fairness, I only really skimmed. But then when I read the book, I was surprised at how white the book is based on what I knew about him and his sort of artistic aesthetic with this imprint. Yeah, because I feel like there's one person of color. It's Medusa. Yeah, yeah. She's like Middle Eastern-ish. Yeah. Right? Like the description is sort of troubled too in that scene. Mm-hmm. And the film makes the decision to make Grover a black character. Uh, oh, my. Oh, oh, Brenna. I could not <laughs> with this character. <laughs> I was like, oh, good. Someone broke out the Dictionary of Ebonics once again. There's even like a rap song performance in the Lotus Eater section, which just paired with the worst CGI in a film filled with bad CGI. It's a lot of bad CGI. legs. I wanted to gouge out my eyes and then shove knitting needles into my ears. Yeah, Grover never gets to be more complex than like... I don't know if Chris Columbus just saw a picture of a black person once and like everything is based on that. But like, first of all, they go to Nashville instead of, instead of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, we're going to Nashville. We have to go to the Parthenon replica in Nashville. And Grover goes, oh, I hate country music. Mm-hmm. And then somebody's like, oh, I bet you like rap. And then he's like, uh-huh, I do. It's so bad. Yeah, basically... <sighs> I think Chris Columbus maybe saw a picture of like a black rapper at one point and was like, oh, so they like food, money, and girls, right? And you're just like, no, those are called stereotypes and they're blatantly offensive. Even for 2010, that like this character could not come off as more inauthentic. Yep. It's really terrible. It's pretty bad. It's shockingly bad, actually. And then it kind of feels like they try to make up for it by casting someone like Rosario Dawson as Persephone, who is a character who, you know, we've removed so many of the characters from the book and we put in Persephone, never mind the fact that it's meant to be summer and Persephone would not be in hell in the summertime, but that's okay. We don't need to accurately represent Greek mythology. But then she's just icky, like she's 
I mean, Grover's not meant to be a teenager. He's meant to be quite a bit older, and he's just on the guise. Like, he looks very young, so he can pass and act as a protector. But it still is really deeply uncomfortable to see an adult woman hitting on Mm -hmm. and suggesting she's going to just automatically sleep with this character when he has to stay behind in hell. And we're supposed to see him as a willing participant in that, and yeah. we're supposed to be fine with it. It's, it's upsetting. Not. It's gross. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, this film is more or less just boring. I think yeah. that's the biggest problem with it. It's <laughs> not I... doing a good job of adapting the book. It's not doing a good job of standing alone as a film like even if you remove the context of the book like i can't imagine fans like this at no all. fans could not have liked this but the film itself is just so boring and the fact that if you know that chris columbus did the first two harry potter yeah. movies it only makes this seem like a half-baked effort like so- okay so we got the guy who did harry potter to come in and here is his c grade effort so there's this british uh, film critic named mark kermode Oh, yes, this is good. (laughs) He has this radio show on BBC Five where he talks about, like, uh, films, right? And when he reviewed this movie, he said that it was so much like Chris Columbus's first Harry Potter film Mm -hmm. that it was like watching a Harry Potter parody book. And he called it Benjamin Sniddlegrass and the Cauldron of Penguins. Would read. Well, somebody wrote it. A fan then wrote Benjamin Sniddlegrass and the Cauldron of Penguin. And then Stephen Fry narrated it. You can get it on Audible. Nice. Okay, so where is that adaptation so we can cover that? (laughs) I'm telling you. Oh, Uh, wow. And it is. It's just, yeah, it's bland. It's boring. It mm -hmm. feels like Chris Columbus cashed in every trope he mastered in the first Harry Potter movie. And... The flip side of that is that if Rick Riordan didn't want people drawing those parallels, he picked the wrong director for the film adaptation. Oh, so he was not involved in any capacity. But yeah, it's just unsuccessful. The books work for the target audience, and obviously they're resonating because he has sold a million copies. Oh yeah, people love these books. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it makes sense when you think about it in terms of dollars. Mm Mm-hmm. We've got a book series, which has a rabid fan base. It seems like a great idea. What a classic example in terms of franchise potential. Let's make it into a film. And then it's everything that we talk about when these don't come together. It's like you didn't pay attention to the source material. Mm -hmm. You saw dollar signs in terms of who you hired as your director because you thought it was just going to make bank. And then it doesn't come together and no one is really left satisfied. Although I will say it cost $95 million to make. It made 88 in North America, but then it made like 130 the rest of the world. So it did make money, which is why we have a sequel that comes out in 2013. That one made nearly the exact same amount of money for about the same cost. But I think they realize, you know what, we're not making anybody happy. We're not growing this franchise. So they have stopped at two. And I don't think we'll ever get further adaptations of this. Riordan is agitating for a Disney reboot of the series. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see a world in which this works. Maybe you could do it as an ongoing TV show where like every Mm -hmm. week Percy encounters 
a different monster and a different challenge and that kind of thing. But in terms of a film, yeah. you're always going to have to par it down because there's just too much in this overstuffed book. And he's never going to be okay with it getting paired back, ever. No, like he's clearly demonstrated that he thinks that the only way to adapt this is to be incredibly faithful. And I believe he actually thinks he should be the one to write it. He absolutely believes that. Yeah. Uh, which is fine. So really what I want to see instead is no more Percy Jackson. I would rather see some of the books that are coming out on Riordan's imprint to be adapted into films or TV shows. Toot sweet, please. Hard agree. Hard agree. Yeah. Okay. Are we done with this? We're done with this. All right. Let's do some bingo. <sighs> okay. Bingo. Not a good bingo. I can start. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go for mediocre white boys, specifically mediocre white gods. Yep. <laughs> I still don't understand why you could take any corporeal form and you choose. Anyway, whatever. My absolute favorite part of the film is when Percy goes to Olympus and he sees the gods and then they come near him and you realize that they've turned them into 30 foot creatures and then he's just regular boy heights so like five nine probably yeah and it not only accentuates just how bad the effects are yeah. but it looks hilariously stupid yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> i just turned to brian i was like oh no they're not gonna do oh they just did it oh it's so bad so this brings me to my next point cgi oh, yeah. the cgi in this movie is egregious I was tempted to actually text you and warn you to say, just so you know, you should expect that this will look awful. <laughs> it looks so bad. And I was even like, it was in its best possible scenario because I was watching it on my iPad. So like best possible scenario for bad CGI. And I could still tell how bad it was. Mm -hmm. Dead parents or at least perceived dead parents. You betcha. Uh, allusions to classic literature, obviously. Of course, yeah. Abuse, right? We find out that Gabe's been abusing Percy's mom. Yeah. Which is kind of uncomfortably never dealt with and then just sort of humorously waved away in both book and film. Yeah, I like the book better in that I like that he isn't in a position to rescue his mom or isn't put mm -hmm. in the position of rescuing his mom. And I, I liked that choice, but I agree that it wasn't, you know, you, you, you know your mom is being abused. She writes to tell you she has dealt with her abuser and you just never write back for three months. That seems odd. Uh, yeah, um... Even the fact that Percy never really apologizes to his mom, yeah, like he recognizes that she has made literally life-altering sacrifices. Like yeah. she has more or less given up her entire adult life to protect him. Yeah. And, you know, she did gaslight him by not telling him the truth for all those years and just making him think that he was kind of dumb, which is also not good. No. But the fact that we don't get any kind of reconciliation, and maybe it happens in later books, but it doesn't satisfy in this no, first book. Not at all. Uh, and then they shot this in Vancouver, so let's throw some CanCon on there. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I feel like the book maybe has some sexual awakening, but it's very funny. It's one of the elements that Riordan associates with them wanting to age up the characters, right? Like, mm -hmm. you're not going to have 12-year-olds having romantic connections, but with 16-year-olds, sure, we can have these two very attractive people make kissy faces at each other. Yeah. But the film doesn't actually really do that. No, there's a moment where you think they're going to, and then they don't. 
at the end, yeah, right? I don't know. Maybe it's a weak option on my part, but uh, I don't really have much more to contribute to mm -hmm. this bingo mm -hmm. card. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that it's so familiar, there aren't the tropes that are strengths of YA. There's right. just familiarity, which is breeding my disappointment and boredom. <laughs> Maybe I'll just That's leave it there. That's a good tagline. That's a good tagline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, well, Brenna, how do yeah. people get a hold of us if they want to yell at us for not <laughs> loving this property more? Yeah, we really are. We are really are picking on a beloved uh, <laughs> I know. Franchise. I was like, this episode is not going to win us any fan. No, it's not. No. So um, you can yell at us both on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, what if they just want to yell at you? <laughs> you can reach me at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. And uh, you can send us longer things like, I don't know, Hades fan fiction Ooh. to hkhspod at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. But just to clarify, it has to be Hades from the film, so it has to be like rocker chic fan fiction. <laughs> or just Steve Coogan fan fiction. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so our next week's mini-sode is going to be our May-June forecast. So look forward to that. Get your whole lists ready. And then our next full-length episode, we will be looking at Trinkets by Kristen Smith and the it's a Netflix, Netflix series. Yeah. series. Yeah. Yeah. So this is another one of those perfect Netflix series because all of the episodes are under 30 minutes. Oh, God. Mm. Mm, delicious love it mostly i'm just excited for this i will apologize for not checking this in advance this was a recommendation from a couple of our listeners uh so it's female centric it's back in high school mode so we are going for some more realist ya but Brenna, just to get you excited the tagline or the way that people describe this is imagine the breakfast club with girls and shoplifting oh, okay well that sounds delightful right i okay. feel like this is what we need and deserve Yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree completely. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So mini sewed next week and everybody start working on trinkets. Sounds good. All right. So until next time, I'll see you on the page. <laughs> I will see you on the screen. Bye. Bye. Bye.